Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our kinsman redeemer. Amen. Amen. may be seated. It is great to be with you this weekend. I've uh, greatly enjoyed meeting many of you, greatly enjoyed your hospitality. I bring greetings from the saints of Trinity Presbyterian Church, uh, a fellow CREC church in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, and it really has been wonderful to be with you. I, I love to uh, see what God is doing in other churches in our communion and uh, I'm, I'm greatly impressed. You all have a wonderful congregation, and it's very clear that God is doing great things uh, in your midst. And I've enjoyed spending time with your pastors this weekend, and uh, very thankful to be here. Uh, so we're looking this morning at Matthew chapter 16, uh, beginning in verse 13. And uh, it, this, is, this is a really interesting passage to me. It's, it's, a, uh, it's obviously been a controversial passage throughout the history of the church. I think it's one of the greatest and most important passages in the entire New Testament. It's a fascinating passage. It's a very controversial passage. It's one we need to understand. And uh, admittedly, we will only scratch the surface here this morning, uh, but there's some very important things here I want to bring out for you. In verse 13, Jesus and his disciples come into the region of Caesarea Philippi. Jesus leads his disciples there to this place for a very specific region. And when the, when the gospel writers give us this kind of geographic information, that's not just to add color. Uh, that's actually important to the story. It's integral to what happens. This is Caesarea Philippi. Herod Philip had been the ruler in this region. He rebuilt the city there. Uh, this is in northern Israel. Of course, he wanted to make sure that he got full credit for what he had done. So when he rebuilt the city, he named it after Caesar and after himself. Uh, politicians being egomaniacs is not just a 21st century thing. That's been going on for quite some time. So the name of this city is the combination of a Gentile ruler, Caesar, with a Jewish ruler, uh, Philip. And this was a place filled with emperor worship. We know it was also a place filled with pagan idolatry. Mount Bashan is located in this region. And if you look at Psalm 68, Bashan is described as a place haunted by demons. Uh, it is a place uh, haunted by the demonic. Now, it's also a place in Psalm 68 that God wants to reclaim for himself. It will be a place where God defeats the demons, a place where God defeats his enemies. 
What's interesting for our purposes is that the Jews called the place at the base of Mount Bashan the gate of hell. So Jesus takes his disciples to uh, an area known as the gate of hell. The area there was widely known for its worship of the Greek god Pan, and of course for the depraved and degenerate culture that went with it. Anywhere you have pagan worship, of course you have pagan lifestyles, pagan practices. So we need to understand this. This whole scene is set at a place of demon worship and emperor worship known as the gate of hell. Further, there were many rock outcroppings in this area around the mountains of Caesarea Philippi. And carved into those rocks were various images of pagan gods, again, doing things that pagan gods do. So the pagan worldview was represented by these carvings into that rock. So again, understand what's happening here. Jesus has deliberately taken his disciples to a place called the gate of hell where pagan gods are carved into rock, a place that the Old Testament says is haunted by demons, a place that is infested with emperor worship and idolatry. And of course, if you've got gate, he, gates here and, and rocks, that kind of imagery is going to figure prominently into this passage. Now, when they get to Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asks a question, and it really is the most important question that can be asked. It is the question about Jesus's identity. He says to his disciples, who do the crowd say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now, you might think here that Jesus has already given the answer away, that the answer really is built into the question. Uh, who do the crowd say that I, the Son of Man, am? He's, he's, he's identifying himself as the Son of Man in the question. And, of course, Son of Man tells us something about who Jesus is. It means he is the new Adam. It means he is the one in Daniel chapter 7 who will ascend to the Ancient of Days and tame the beastly pagan empires and inherit the kingdom. But obviously, there's more to Jesus' identity than this that he wants to pull out of his disciples. And so Jesus is asked what the crowds are saying about him. And so the disciples say, well, the crowds have these various theories about your identity. Some think you're John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets risen from the dead. And of course, in all of these answers, there's more than a grain of truth in the sense that every single one of those figures is connected to Jesus. Every single one of those figures named is a type or a pattern, serves as a kind of template for understanding who Jesus is. Jesus will fulfill the roles that each one of these figures has played. But none of those answers fully captures his identity. And so then Jesus says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? There it is, the most important question that can be asked. Who do you say that Jesus is? And Peter steps forward to answer. And here, as in the rest of this passage, Jesus uh, is he's asked this question. Peter's going to answer it. And one thing we see throughout the rest of this passage is that Peter acts as a representative of all of the apostles. He's speaking as a representative here for all of the disciples. And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That is to say, you are the promised king, the one who will inaugurate God's kingdom. Now, Peter's got the words right. I don't think he fully understands what these words mean. In fact, he has to be rebuked in the very next passage for misunderstanding his own answer. So he certainly does not understand everything that he has just spoken. But his answer is exactly 
right. Jesus is the Christ, meaning he is the anointed one, anointed with God's spirit. He's the one God promised to send, the promised son of David. The Christ is the son of David. And further, he is also the son of the living God. So as son of David, we could say he's man. As the son of the living God, we could say he is fully divine. To be the Christ is to be the son of David. To be the son of the living God means he is God incarnate. Again, I don't think Peter understood the full depths of his answer. That's clear. Uh, from what happens next, but it is the right answer. And Jesus affirms Peter in this. Indeed, Jesus says to Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but the Father in heaven. The Father reveals the Son to his chosen ones. The Father reveals the Son, and in doing so, brings them into his salvation. Jesus says flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but the Father. See, Jesus here is speaking as a good Augustinian, we could say. Uh, this is Christ the Calvinist. He believes in the sovereignty of God and salvation. Peter didn't figure this out on his own. This is not a matter of human reason. It's, it's not that uh, flesh and blood has figured this out. No, this is a divine revelation. This is a gift. Knowledge of Jesus as the Son of God is a gift, a gift of God's grace. And so Jesus is saying here that God's grace has been at work in Peter. Knowing Jesus and knowing his identity is a gift. Everything in the Christian life is by grace. Everything is the gift of the Father. For Christians, grace is like oxygen. It's the very air we breathe that keeps us alive. Knowing Jesus, knowing Jesus as the Christ and the Son of the living God is a matter of grace. Knowing Jesus is a matter of grace from start to finish. Jesus goes on. He says, I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is a promise Jesus makes, and this is one of the most important declarations in all of Scripture because it really reveals God's purposes for his people and God's purposes for history. It's not really just about Peter, as we'll see. This is about Jesus' purpose, his mission for his church in the world, what Jesus is going to do through his church in the world throughout the course of history. There are really three key terms here, three crucial terms we need to understand. That term rock, uh, that term keys, and that term, gates. So let's consider each one of these. Consider rock. Jesus calls Peter the rock. He's going to build his church on the rock. Now, this is a pun. It is a play on Peter's name. The Greek word for rock is Petra, so it sounds very much like the name Peter. It's as if Jesus says, you are the rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. That's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus says he will build his church on Peter as the confessing apostle. But we need to understand, and this is one aspect of this passage that's been so important and so controversial throughout the history of the church, we need to understand what is said here is not unique to Peter. Peter has stepped forward as a spokesman for the rest of the 12, for the whole of the 12. But what is said here to Peter is not unique to him. Contrary to Roman Catholic claims, this is not something that is unique 
to Peter. Peter's singled out as the foremost of the apostles. You could say he's sort of a first among equals. But what is said here of Peter is actually said of, of the rest of the apostles and indeed of New Testament prophets as well. So in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul, the apostle, says, the church will be built on the foundation of the prophets and apostles with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In the book of Revelation, when we have a, uh, a uh, symbolic picture of the church at the end of the, uh, of the book, the New Jerusalem there has 12 foundation stones. It's patterned after, built upon the 12 apostles. So in Ephesians 2 and at the end of the book of Revelation, what we see is that Jesus is going to build his church on all of the apostles. All of the apostles taken together will be part of the rock-solid foundation on which the church is built. The church has not just a Petrine foundation, the church has an apostolic foundation. And if you set Peter apart from the rest of the 12, you run into trouble with Ephesians 2 and, and the book of Revelation and really other places that we could point as well. Uh, that simply doesn't work. The church has an apostolic foundation. The apostles laid the foundation of the church through their inspired writings, what we call the New Testament, and of course all through, also through the missionary work that they did, the church's that they planted. And we can say that the church of today is still building on this foundation. We just confessed a few minutes earlier in the Nicene Creed that there is one holy Catholic and apostolic church. The early Christians did not say there is one Petrine church. They said there's an apostolic church. That's how the Nicene Creed puts it because this whole idea of Peter as the Pope and, and having this kind of singular role, that was a later development, not something found in the scriptures or even in the early church. The reality is we are continuing to build on that apostolic foundation today. We're seeking to build according to the apostolic blueprint today. Uh, that's what it means for the church to be apostolic. We're building on that foundation the apostles laid along with the prophets with Jesus as the chief cornerstone in the first century. Well, then consider the keys. Jesus gives the keys of the kingdom to Peter. Peter will be a kind of gatekeeper for the church. But again, this is representative and it describes the kind of ministry that actually belongs to all pastors and elders in the church. So elsewhere, we find that all of the apostles have these keys. They're not given exclusively to Peter. They're given to all the apostles. So in John chapter 20, after Jesus' resurrection, when he is meeting with his apostles, he basically says the same thing to them that he says to Peter here in Matthew 16. He says to his apostles, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. See, the apostles will have a ministry of proclaiming forgiveness. And those who believe their words, those who believe their gospel will be loosed from their sins. And those who reject their words will be bound in their sins. The preaching of the gospel will have this power. In Matthew 18, we find that these keys belong really to the whole church and are exercised on behalf of the church by the elders. The elders exercise this power of the keys on behalf of the whole congregation. So in Matthew 18, Jesus is describing the church discipline process. And there are a number of, of steps, a number of stages that Jesus describes in this church discipline process. But then towards the end, he says this of the church's officers. He says, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. It sounds just like what he says to Peter, only here 
It's for the whole congregation. There's a sense in which we are all gatekeepers and a sense in which pastors and elders in the church today have a special gatekeeping function. They have the keys, and so they open and close the gates to the kingdom of heaven. They bind and loose people. They can loose people from their sins or bind people in their sins. Now, what this means is that Jesus has delegated a very important authority to his church. The fancy terms we use to describe this authority, we say that this authority given to the church is ministerial and declarative. That means it is an authority that is exercised in service to Jesus, and it's declarative. It's not absolute. It's not absolute because it's not infallible. Jesus is always the final judge, but the church does have a real authority, a kind of provisional authority. And so when the church absolves sin, And we did this this morning in the liturgy. We got down on our knees, we confessed our sin, and then we stood up and we heard words of forgiveness pronounced to us from the scriptures. When the church absolves us of our sins, when the church makes that kind of declaration of forgiveness through her pastors, that is a real authoritative proclamation of forgiveness. And further, when the church practices discipline, and when that discipline results in an excommunication because somebody will not repent of some flagrant sin, again, that's an action that really matters. It really carries weight. And so long as the declaration of absolution or a declaration of excommunication, so long as these are faithful applications of Scripture, they really do count. What the church does, God does. What's done on earth is done in heaven. The elders of the church are Christ's deputies. They're ordained for just this reason, to serve as his ambassadors, his emissaries, to act as his agents and his spokesmen. They do this binding and loosing. They have this ministry of binding and loosing. And that has real authority. And you need to understand this is for your comfort. Why would Christ set up his church this way? Well, this is how John Calvin describes it, the church's ministry of loosing us from our sins as uh, declared in the absolution. So when believers come together and confess their sins and then hear a pastor declare absolution, John Calvin says, this is what is happening. Christ has, uh, according to Calvin, Christ has given pastors the keys so that, quote, the grace of the gospel may be publicly and privately sealed in the hearts of believers. God has established this ministry, Christ established this ministry through the apostles and then through pastors and elders for our comfort so that we can know, so that we can know assuredly that our sins are truly forgiven. Calvin says we should seek the forgiveness of sins where God has placed it and that is on the lips of our local parish pastor that when he exercises the keys, he truly is speaking for God in order to assure us that what Christ has accomplished, that what Christ did, he did for us, that everything Christ accomplished belongs to us. God wants you to know that, so he has appointed human instruments to serve as his representatives so that the pastor's voice in this way can be identified with God's voice. So when your pastor declares to you, your sins are forgiven, John Calvin says you should hear that as if God was speaking to you straight from heaven because God wants you to know that your sins really are forgiven. He wants you to have that assurance. 
And then finally, we come to the gates, the gates of hell. Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. The gates of hell will not stand against his church. Jesus here is describing a great battle. This indicates there's going to be a great battle throughout history. And the battle is going to be between the church that Jesus is building and hell. The church versus hell, that's the battle. And Jesus says here, the church he is building, standing squarely on the foundation of the apostles and their teaching as the foundational rock on which this church is built, and the apostles and then pastors and elders who come after them, equipped with the keys, the word of God, to bind and to loose, that church is at war with hell. The church goes to war with Satan's kingdom. Satan's kingdom is described here as Hades or hell. You think of it this way, Peter and the apostles are the church's gatekeepers. Satan is hell's gatekeeper. But in this battle, the church is on the offensive, Satan is on the defensive, and Satan's gates will not stand. Satan's gates will be crushed. What's going to happen in this battle? This is so important to understand. How should we view this battle? You know, uh, one thing that really troubles me about the church in our day is it seems the church in our day has gotten so used to losing that we have started to think like losers. Uh, we have lost so much ground, we just assume that's the way things are and always will be. If you were to ask the typical American evangelical Christian, and I'm talking about even one who would say he believes the Bible from beginning to end as the Word of God, the typical Christian today would say that the world, if you were to ask him, is the world getting better or worse? He would say, oh, the world is getting worse, but then he would go on to say, it's good that things are getting bad because that means Jesus will come back soon. Now, the reality is there's not a shred of biblical evidence that that's actually the case. But either one of those things is true, that the world is supposed to get worse or that things getting worse somehow is a signal that Jesus is coming back soon. Actually, that whole view is simply preposterous. It has no foundation in Scripture. It's simply not what Scripture teaches. And Matthew 16 is one of many, many, many texts that refutes that view. You know, you've heard the saying, hope is not a strategy. Okay, well, it depends what you hope in. If your hope is in Christ and his gospel and the work of his spirit in the world, I would say that kind of hope is a strategy. But I'll tell you what is not a strategy is pessimism. Pessimism is not a strategy. And in fact, here I would say Jesus is forbidding pessimism. He is forbidding his people to be pessimistic about his kingdom. If you are pessimistic, I don't mean you can't be a short-term pessimist if you see certain things that trouble you. That, would, that makes sense, and I'll talk about that here in just a minute. But if, you, if your view of the history of the church is pessimistic, that is a sin, a sin of unbelief or hopelessness that Jesus here is rebuking. Because Jesus here is promising victory to his church. Think about the way the imagery here works. The gates in this passage belong to hell, and gates are defensive weapons, and those gates will not prevail. Those gates will not stand when attacked. This means Jesus is putting hell on the run. The devil is on the run. 
The church is marching forward to victory and not even the gates of hell will stand against the victorious march of the church. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's what Jesus is promising. He's saying that his church will have a world-conquering, hell-conquering mission and she will succeed in this mission. The church is not playing defense here. The church is on offense. And Jesus envisions his church as a marching army, a kind of rolling fortress, advancing and conquering. And he's saying the gates of death and darkness cannot stop the advancing mission of the church. The church that Jesus builds will conquer. The church is Jesus' plan A for world conquest, and there is no plan B. He will accomplish his purposes in history through his church. This church will not retreat or surrender. This church will advance. And Jesus is describing here what his church will accomplish in history. We could say over the centuries, over the millennia. And Jesus is promising victory to his church. Not just a victory that comes right at the very end, as if victory is snatched from the jaws of defeat right at the end when Jesus comes back in glory. No, he's promising to build his church. He's promising victory in history. The church versus Hades is the great battle of history, and Jesus says here the church is going to win that battle. And this is because the church is not merely a human organization or some kind of human club. I think sometimes we think of the church this way. We think of the church in all too human terms. And so we think of the church as just one more voluntary association, one more kind of, you know, it's kind of a Jesus fan club that you can sign up and join if you want to be with some like-minded people. And there are other clubs and associations out there, and, you know, they're kind of like the church. They just have different interests, different purposes, and here we come together because we like Jesus. We're the people who like Jesus. Well, that's not what the church is. The church is not a human creation. Uh, it's not a bunch of Christians who decide to get together and form something on their own. Think about what Jesus says here. Jesus says, I will build my church. This is his project, his undertaking, his doing, his work. The church will stand or fall based on what Jesus does. So really, your confidence in the church depends on your confidence in Jesus. If you don't have much confidence in Jesus, then no, you won't have much confidence in the church. But if you believe that Jesus, when he says, I will build my church, that he is going to build something truly great and majestic and spectacular, a great cathedral down through the ages of history, as it were, that is a sign of his triumph, a monument to his finished work through his death and his resurrection and his outpouring of the Holy Spirit, then you're going to have confidence in the church and the church's mission. This is his project, and the church will succeed not because of who we are, not because of flesh and blood, but because of Jesus, because of who Jesus is, because of his grace, his mercy, his bloodshed, his spirit poured out. The church will be triumphant because Jesus is triumphant. Now, don't misunderstand. This does not mean that every particular local congregation is going to be triumphant in this way. But it does mean the church, the church collectively, the church Catholic, we could say, the church universal will be triumphant. Further, don't misunderstand in this way either. This does not mean that church history will be a straight upward climb, uh, even if the church is 
going to be victorious in the long run. Even if she's going to win the great war, she might lose some battles along the way. Actually, I, I quoted this yesterday, but I'll quote it again. G.K. Chesterton once said, reflecting on the ups and downs of the church in history, different times the church had been under attack from heresy or persecution when it looked like things were really bad for the church, like the church might die out altogether. He said five times the church has gone to the dogs, but on each occasion it was the dogs that died. And like I said yesterday, I have no doubt if Chesterton were around today, he'd say there's a sixth time that the church has gone to the dogs, but once again... It's going to be the dog that dies while the church marches on. It may seem in our day that the church is being overwhelmed with corruption from within and enemies from the outside, but you can rest assured the church might be down for a moment, but the church will rise again. The church never stays down for long. She, is, she always emerges from these kinds of battles, uh, these kinds of struggles, Wounded, perhaps, scarred, perhaps, but stronger and wiser and more mature than she was before. Because God is bringing his people to maturity, growing us up into the full stature of Christ throughout the course of history. Sometimes it looks like it's a bear market for the church, but when the church's stock falls, that's the best time to buy. Because the church will bounce back. In the long run, we should all be bullish about the church and about her future. Okay, if you want to be a pessimist about something, you ought to be a pessimist about Hades, about the gates of hell. <laughs> That's where you ought to be bearish. That's where you ought to be pessimistic, is if you're on the side of Hades. But it is interesting to me how people love to predict the church's demise and the church's doom. The philosopher Voltaire in the year 1776, living in Geneva, said, 100 years from today, there will not be a Bible on earth except one that is looked at as an antique by a curious person. He went on to say, he said, we are living in the twilight of Christianity. In other words, Voltaire said in 1776, I believe that when a within 100 years, Bibles will be relegated to museums. They'll be looked at as antiques. The same way we might look at any other ancient piece of literature that basically has been forgotten, that just is a historical curiosity. No one's going to believe the Bible. Nobody's going to take it seriously. He said, this is the twilight of Christianity. The Christian faith is dying out. But I tell you, God has a sense of humor because in a twist of irony, the very house in which Voltaire lived in when he made that prediction was later used by the Evangelical Society of Geneva as a storehouse for all of their Bibles and their <laughs> gospel tracts, their evangelistic tracts that they would give away to people. So take that, Voltaire. <laughs> 1822, Thomas Jefferson said this, there is no living man who will die a Christian. What a prediction. There is no living man who will die a Christian, he believed that every man alive in 1822 would be converted to some form of deism or Unitarianism before they died. He, he just saw this rationalistic, deistic, Unitarian faith as unstoppable, and so it was going to squash the church. The church would completely die out. In his view, the Christian faith was waning. Well, was Thomas Jefferson right? Well, no, obviously not. The very fact that we are gathered here today proves him wrong. 
the very fact that we are gathered here today to read the scriptures, to proclaim the scriptures, to hear the scriptures, to confess our faith in the triune God, shows us that men like Voltaire and Jefferson, who announced this doom and gloom for the church, were false prophets. The reality is that millions upon millions of Christians are gathering to worship this very day. So yes, it may seem the church is struggling, especially in our neck of the woods, but the church in reality is larger than she's ever been. She's growing rapidly, globally considered, and the future for the church is just as bright as the promises of Jesus. When you consider the history of the church, there is no human explanation for it. The only way you can explain the growth of the church from a tiny handful at the beginning of the book of Acts to what we see today, the only possible explanation is that Jesus is indeed building his church and that the gates of hell cannot resist her or stand in her way. The church is a divine institution. Only the presence of Christ with his church can explain her success and her staying power over the generations. Again, Chesterton, I love this one from Chesterton. Chesterton said, I believe in Christianity, and my impression is that a system must be divine which has survived so much insane mismanagement. <laughs> now, your present pastors are, are excluded from this, of course, uh, but it's, it's really true. Sometimes the church has been her own worst enemy. Sometimes the church has suffered from insane mismanagement, and yet nevertheless, the church keeps marching on. In the screw tape letter, C.S. Lewis's uh, obviously fictional, although sometimes I wonder, uh, account of uh, letters from a senior demon to a junior demon. This is how Screwtape def defines the church. You can think of this as the church as Satan sees it. This is Satan's ecclesiology. The demon Screwtape says the church is spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity as terrible as an army with banners. That's how Satan sees the church. I would say Satan perhaps has a higher ecclesiology than many modern American Christians who don't see the church that way at all. The church is going to be the winningest institution in all of history. Jesus is determined to win. And he is determined to win this victory through us, to implement his victory through us, weak though we may be. In fact, you can look at Peter and see a wonderful example of this. Peter is such a great example of how God can use the weak even to accomplish great things, how Jesus can use flawed people like me, like you, like Peter, to do amazing things in the world. Peter makes this grand confession about how Jesus is the Christ and the Son of the living God. He makes that confession here in Matthew 16. But then a few verses later, Jesus has to say to him, "'Get behind me, Satan!' Because Peter has become a stumbling block to Jesus. He's tempting Jesus to seek the kingdom without the cross, just like Satan did back in Matthew chapter 4. But that wasn't Peter's last big blunder. You might have think, think that, well, Peter surely will learn his lesson and, you know, think before he speaks. But no, in Galatians chapter 2, Peter had to be corrected by Paul. Paul had to confront Peter to his face because he was not walking in line with the gospel. He was garbling the gospel message because he pulled back from having fellowship with Gentile believers. He acted in a cowardly way that contradicted the gospel. When pressure arose to separate from the Gentiles, Peter fell for it, even though he knew better, so Paul had to confront him. 
But despite these weaknesses, despite his mess-ups and his failures, Peter was used greatly. Jesus built his church through Peter, even though Peter was very imperfect. And he can continue to build his church through us today, despite the fact that we have all kinds of weaknesses and imperfections as well. The victory of the church does not depend on our strength. It depends on Jesus. I will build my church, Jesus says. The victory of the church in history, again, is not a last-second escape. No, rather, it is a long, slow march through all the world's nations. It's the long, slow march of the gospel through all the world's institutions until they have been subdued to Christ. Now, why does Jesus mention Hades here? Why does he describe it in this way? Hades, of course, was the Greek name for the realm of the dead. The Hebrews would have called it Sheol. In Isaiah chapter 38, when Hezekiah was sick, Uh, He says he's at the very gate of Sheol. If you were speaking Greek, uh, you would have said he's at the very gate of Hades. And ultimately, he gets delivered from the gate of Sheol in that account, or the gate of Hades. Uh, But that, that gives you some idea. It's the realm of the dead. When Jesus speaks here of the of the gates of Hades not prevailing against the church, he's really talking about death. He's saying death cannot defeat his church. Death cannot stop his church. The church has Christ's resurrection life, and therefore the church has the power to overcome death. And so not even martyrdom can signal the church's defeat at the hands of Hades. In fact, martyrdom, when Christians suffer and are persecuted and ultimately martyred for their faith, martyrdom is one more way the church overcomes Hades. But here's something else that's going on, another way to to, to think about this, to understand this. Jesus' kingdom is the realm of his rule. Wherever Jesus' rule is acknowledged and trusted and obeyed, there you have the kingdom of Jesus. Well, here I would say Hades is not just the realm of the dead. Hades is the realm of Satan. It is the kingdom of Satan. And Outside of Christ, everyone belongs to Hades. If you're not in the kingdom of Christ, you're in the kingdom of Hades. And yes, that means there are many respectable people, many people who seem to be good citizens, perhaps decent neighbors, who actually belong to Hades, who belong to the kingdom of Satan. Hades is the realm in which Satan rules. And if you're not in Christ's kingdom, you are in Satan's kingdom. Hades is Satan's kingdom, Satan's house. But remember, Jesus told a parable about Satan's house in Mark chapter 3. They had accused Jesus of using demonic power to cast out demons, and Jesus responds by saying, that is crazy. A house divided against itself cannot stand. But then he goes on to say, if he's casting out demons, what does that mean? He says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder it unless he first binds the strong man. And so that means this is what Jesus has done. He has bound the strong man, Satan, and he is now plundering Satan's house. He is plundering Hades, freeing people from death and from hell. Indeed, we are plunder Jesus has rescued from Satan's house. We were in Satan's house as it was burning to the ground, and Jesus rescued us. He plucked us out of it. He brought us out of Hades and brought us into his own kingdom. He brought us from death to life, from darkness to light. But you know what? Now Jesus wants us to continue that work of plundering Hades, of rescuing sinners from death and hell, of rescuing sinners from a burning house. 
as we proclaim the gospel, as we announce this good news, as we live as bearers of Jesus' truth and love, we do this. We rescue others from Hades, from Satan's house. And that is Jesus' battle plan. That's how Jesus is going to win. Hades is a house built on the sand. It will fall. But the church is a house built on the rock, the rock of Jesus as the chief cornerstone and built on chips off the old block. You could say the apostles as foundation stones as well. The church will stand. I think Jesus took his disciples out to the most pagan place in Israel, to Caesarea Philippi, to uh, the area where Mount Bashan was located. I think Jesus took his disciples out to the most pagan place in Israel to make this declaration. He took them to a demon-haunted, idolatry-infested city, to the very place known as the gate of hell, so they could see what he was calling them to do, the kind of mission they would have. He wanted them to see the church is called to set up shop and to carry on Christ's mission right at the threshold of the gates of hell. And we're not to retreat, but we are to charge. We're to run straight into the battle to rescue sinners from this burning house, from Hades, from the kingdom of Satan. We're not called to circle the wagons or hold down the fort. No, we're called to storm the gates. The church is called to be a battering ram against the gates of Hades. It might seem we're outnumbered and outmaneuvered today. It might seem like the forces of hell have us surrounded. If we feel that way sometimes in Birmingham, I'm sure you feel that way in Seattle. But I, I love the words of that crusty old Marine, chesty puller, that he told to his men at a particular dicey moment in the heat of battle, he said to his men, the enemy has surrounded us, which means we have them right where we want them. The enemy has surrounded us, which means we can't miss. Christ has set up his church right at the gates of hell, so we can't miss the target. He sets up his church in places like Caesarea Philippi or places like Seattle, Washington. He sets up his church in places of darkness so we can bring light. He sets up his church so we can advance Christ's mission. And we're told here again, the, the, the mission that Christ has given to his church will be carried out with an irresistible power because the church is indestructible. Theodore Beza was John Calvin's right-hand man. And, of course, he saw the church attacked again and again by the powers that be. But Beza said the church is like an anvil that has worn out many a hammer. That's what we are. The church is an anvil that has worn out many a hammer. Wicked rulers and, and other wicked powers can pound away at the church, but the church cannot be destroyed. Let me give you one last example of this ripped from the headlines from not too long ago, really just a few months back. Of course, over the summer, back in June, the Supreme Court handed down the Dobbs decision, which overturned the 1973 Roe decision and ended a federal right to abortion. And even though that, of course, means the battle over abortion is not over, it's certainly something that is worthy of celebration. It has to be seen as a great triumph for the church in our land. Uh, the fight's not over, but this is a great 
victory nonetheless. Now, of course, if we understand abortion in biblical terms, we would call abortion the worship of Molech because Molech is the false god, the, 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 the demon, the idol that people would sacrifice their children to. So abortion, you could say, is a modern form of Molech worship. But this is what I find really interesting. Those who want to defend abortion in our land, when this Dobbs ruling was handed down, when the Dobbs ruling was handed down, they vowed to fight back. They vowed to defend the right of mothers to kill their own offspring. They vowed to defend Molech worship. But listen to what some of them said. This is Gavin Newsom. Said, our daughters, sisters, mothers, and grandmothers will not be silenced. The world is about to hear their fury. California will not sit back. We're going to fight like hell. Senator Elizabeth Warren, when this Dobbs ruling was handed down, this is what Elizabeth Warren had to say I'm madder than hell, and I'm determined to fight like hell. And then in the state of Michigan, Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Women are waking up this morning feeling hopeless, but we can't go back. I'm more motivated than ever to keep fighting like hell to ensure abortion remains safe and accessible in Michigan. Notice that word they all kept using? They keep invoking hell. It's almost as if they know subconsciously whose side they're on in this battle. They are on Hades' side, but the gates of Hades will not prevail. The worship of Molech will not prevail against the worship of the triune God. Jesus will defeat Satan and all the other false gods, Molech included, all the other false gods that hold people in bondage. Jesus will defeat Molech and all the rest of them. Jesus reigns right now as king of kings. Jesus has all authority right now. Jesus is building his church right now. And Satan and his minions can do nothing to stop it. Jesus will claim the nations. The church he is building will disciple those nations. Ultimately, every town, city, state, nation, indeed the whole planet, will bow the knee before King Jesus. The planet will be Christianized. And so this passage in Matthew 16 gives us hope even as it challenges us. Christ uses weak, fallible believers like us to overthrow Satan's kingdom of darkness and to extend his church. Do not buy into the doom and gloom view that the church is history's loser. The church will win because Jesus has won. Satan has already done his worst. Jesus has conquered him and put him to shame and put him to flight. In Colossians chapter 2, we're told by the Apostle Paul that when Jesus suffered and died on the cross, he was disarming Satan, making a spectacle, a spectacle of him, triumphing over him. He uses that word triumph. That comes from Roman military lore where when a Roman general would conquer a city, he would take the vanquished king and he would march him down Main Street to humiliate him, to show that he was defeated, and that was Rome's triumph, the sign of Rome's great victory. Paul is telling us that's what Jesus has done with Satan. He has triumphed over Satan, he has humiliated him, he has put the devil on the run. The church is on the offensive and Satan is on the run. Satan's house is falling, Christ's house is rising, Praise be to God. 
Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your great and glorious promises that you have made to us about your church and about the victory of your church in history based on the victory that Christ Jesus has already won. Father, we thank you that not even the gates of Hades can stand against the victorious march of your church. Father, help us to be faithful soldiers in this army. Help us to be faithful and fearless in the fight you've called us to that the gates of hell might be conquered, that people might be rescued from bondage to Satan, to darkness, to death, that they might be brought into Christ's glorious kingdom of life, into his church, the place where his grace and mercy are found. This we pray in the strong name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let us continue our worship by singing together hymn 135A.